And welcome back to episode 71 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Today we got a great guest with us, John Wallace. You may know him as a wild game cook. Find him on Instagram as at wild game cook. And John was great coming on the show with us today. He uh, dived into all kinds of interesting topics, including like his kind of love for not just like fine cuisine, but also like real down to earth comfort foods. Uh, we chat kind of about his immersion into the hunting world and, uh, you know, further developing those culinary and even butchering skills. So like a big thank you for John coming on. But before we get into that, Chase Sheldon, you're here in the intro. What's up, fellas? What's up, Chase? Hey, man, just uh, hanging out in the basement, you know, just doing some social distancing here. And uh, yeah, trying to figure out when the next time I can hit the ice will be pretty much. And Sheldon, how are you doing? Man, I am feeling great. I'm revamped, revived. I got on the ice. I catch some, caught some walleyes. Um, Christmas is over and done with. I got a few days off between uh, Christmas and New Year's now, so hopefully do a little bit more fishing, do a little bit of podcasting with you fellas, but I'm just, uh, I'm very happy that um, that I'm here today. Very happy. Man, I'm, I'm super jealous because I think I'm the only one that hasn't put something down on the ice yet, and uh, you guys have had a couple good days out there already. On your ends. Have you been out lots, Tristan? I've only been up a, a couple times, and uh, I went out near Gimli recently, and it was kind of it was kind of nice to be back there. I hadn't fished there in a while. Um, I was able to ice a few. I kept five, and uh, you know, which was good enough for me. But still, got home in time to spend some time with the little guy and watch the Team Canada World Junior game. Um, so that that was a victory in my eyes there, and I I managed to give away some of the fish so um i think it's a win on all ends i saw i saw your fish it looked like you're a lake dolphin there sheldon and uh that uh, you had one great walleye that came through the ice there yeah i was at lake dolphin uh, off the turtle off the turtle river if anybody's familiar with that area and we were there's a uh, like the famous rock pile we're actually not far from it and we did pretty good like there's obvious lows and um during the day, where where we weren't getting much, but it gave us enough time to cook up some sandwiches over the over the grill. We had some grilled uh, cheese and leftover ham sandwiches uh, on the ice, so that was super good. But uh, yeah, we we did all right. We caught a lot of our fish. To be honest with you, we only took two home. Uh, I think we caught like fourteen or something. We only took two home because of the slot size there. So a lot of good, big, healthy, fat fish. Like even that one I got, I think it might have been like twenty two inches or something. I don't know what it was, but like you know pretty big shoulders on it big belly on it it was a nice healthy looking fish that's awesome so we're just on the tail end of the holiday season here and uh hope everyone had a good christmas and if you if you celebrate christmas and uh santa was very generous as usual um did you guys get anything cooler like how was your holidays man my holidays were uh they were pretty busy just like not not busy like they usually are but it's just like not the usual kind of break in the action that I'm used to just with the kids and it is it's the same kind of routine that I've been in with the boys and stuff for, for the last little while but the nice change was just uh, uh, more or less um, opening a few gifts and honestly I always enjoy the holiday cuisine so like the the suppers and stuff like that which is was difficult to kind of manufacture this year because Cooking an entire turkey for our family at home here leaves us with a lot of extra 
turkey left over, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we also wanted to share some of that. So what we did is we, we like cooked a couple of birds and then we would package it up and take it to doorsteps of our families and drop it off. But we also just cooked for ourselves, you know, enough turkey, kept enough turkey, but also made the other dishes like pierogies and uh, what else did we have? Can't even remember now. But just, just stuff like that. A few more like traditional holiday dishes. And, uh, man, I, I just always love those dishes. So look forward to that every year. Man, it's funny because I had swung by your place there when I knew you were out dropping off dishes. And uh, I, I was like, I saw the pit barrel bucking. And I was going to, I can't remember, I was dropping off something. But anyways, that's irrelevant. And I saw the pit barrel bucking. And I'm like, oh, he's wasting, he's wasting good coal. And, uh, and so I was just like, oh, you can add steaks on there or something. And I left. And then you texted me later that evening and you're like, did you check out the, cause I knew you were cooking a turkey during the day. You're like, did you check out the pit barrel? I was like, no, I thought you were just like burning off the rest of the coal. And you're like, no, I, I had a second turkey in there. You cooked two turkeys <laughs> on the pit barrel in one day. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So we did, uh, we dropped off some grub at, uh, at a few different places on Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas day, I also had that second turkey ready to deliver after we opened gifts in the morning and stuff like that. So that's how we kind of spent our holidays. Um, not so much sharing with a lot of, uh, any sort of time with friends or family, just more sharing food and some gifts in ways that we could. Right. And it was, uh, so super different that way, but the, the turkeys that came off that pit barrel, man, were freaking phenomenal. I did this one with with orange and it was like an orange and rosemary um, dryer up and top notch, man. Top notch. They they look fantastic. I got a little taste of them. They were fantastic. Did you do you do you know what a flock of turkeys is called? Um, Pop quiz. It's called a raptor. So, Chase, one more turkey in that pit barrel this year, and you would have, have cooked a rafter of turkeys. Officially <laughs> qualifies a rafter, in my opinion. Are uh, you saying rafter or rafter? Rafter. I just looked it up, man. A rafter of turkeys, or a flock, I guess is the other term you can use. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the normal term. <laughs> a normal term for a group of birds. Other than, no, no, no. Other than crows. A murder, but yeah, that that that, that pit barrel is something else. Team me up, Tristan, because I was going to tell you about my Christmas present I got, or one of them. I got to tell you about a couple of them, <clears throat> but I actually got a uh, pit barrel cover for my pit barrel junior, and uh, so it was super cool. And I got a little gift bag. Uh, got it from a family member because they know that we do a lot of cooking. So I got a bottle opener and uh, one of those. Uh, Chase, you have one of those like what are they called chimneys? Yeah. So. I got one of them as well. So basically that is just to start your coals uh, or your briquettes or whatever, an easier, easier way using this chimney. But I got a bunch of that stuff, so I actually went on to the, to the website because I didn't understand there's all this extra accessories along with the pit barrel cooker. Uh, as anybody that listens to this podcast, you know that we're, um, you know, we, we work together with pit barrel on a lot of different projects, and they're a huge supporter of our podcast. They have uh, two different kind of cookers. They got the 18-inch normal pit barrel, and they also have the pit barrel junior, which is a 14-and-a-half-inch um, barrel. They're one of the, like, the first upright barrel cooking systems, and they're super easy to use. We use them all the time. And they have a bunch of accessories. They got 
covers, rubs, shakers, apparel, excuse me, uh, knives, drinkware, a whole bunch of other stuff. So go to their website, www.pitbarrelcooker.com, and check them out. They're free shipping, I believe, in the United States and in Canada. There's a map on their website that shows you all the places where you can actually pick one up uh, right across the whole country. So check out their website, www.pitbarrelcooker.com. Thanks, guys. Sheldon, did you get anything else for Christmas, or was that about the uh, totality of it? No. i, I, I got to tell you about two things. Just first of all, Tristan, I think this has a lot to do with being a friend of yours and um, waking up groggy after a bonfire or two and, and wanting a cup of coffee. That bonfire Maybe smoke you... will get you every time, man. <laughs> I know, right? So <clears throat> I asked for a coffee grinder, and... Um, something to make coffee with, which I end up getting. So I'm super excited to start trying out like these specialty beans and grinding my own coffee. So thanks a lot for that kind of idea, Tristan, because now I got that all set up. But my main gift that I most, I got to talk about because I'm like very, um, I don't know how to say it, proud and like pretty sensitive about, I guess, is my dad mounted me my first ever archery buck, probably first ever my biggest archery buck to date. And what he did is he actually went and found some old timber that was laying down cut off a nice big chunk and he got my arrow and the broadhead and put it all on there and put it all together and gave it to me for Christmas. So it was like a very special gift gift for me. So uh, I put it on the Instagram, uh, on our Instagram. So if anyone wants to check it out, um, it should be on there. And that turned out great. Like I couldn't, I couldn't believe your old man put that all together and just like was that thoughtful. And it, it just, what a piece of, uh, to, to add to the memory bank. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and uh, it's he, he. He's actually done it to me before too, and quite a few years ago. And I, I can't remember which buck it was, but he did kind of the same idea. And you know, after this year, you know, it wasn't the biggest biggest deer in the world by any means, but it meant a lot to me. And uh, it was kind of cool that he he knew it meant a lot to me, and he kind of put it all together to to make a finished product. I guess. Yeah. One thing. One thing I really liked about that that what he what he said, Sheldon, was that like he went into the woods pretty much right where you harvested that buck and that's where he grabbed that piece of timber for for the to mount it on and i thought that was like that's top notch man that's wicked yeah let's go an extra mile for sure chase how about you anything extra under the tree from santa there or any kind of memorable christmas gifts one way or the other um on my end not a whole bunch uh what i will say was was kind of neat was um if anyone knows us personally, they know that uh, our mom does a lot of camping, a lot of hiking, and, and that kind of stuff. So um, one thing that we kind of put together for her was we made an order at Wool Love there and got her some gear, which she was over the top about and was, like, telling me how she's going to go take it out and test it out this week. So I don't know. I thought I thought that was pretty cool that, that you know, we have a really good product of uh, these these people that that support this company that supports our podcast here. Uh, Wool Love. If you guys haven't heard of them, go check them out at wool.love. And uh, what they are is like a, a base layer clothing for outdoors or whatever you're doing. They're a merino wool base layer, so it keeps you uh, feel warm, keeps you dry, and keeps you cool when you need to be cool too. And uh, the cool thing about merino wool, if you don't know, in this wool love, is this antimicrobial. So 
it's not going to keep you stinky and smelly when you're sweating all day. And uh, what that antimicrobial does is actually uh, um, inhibits the uh, bacterial growth. So it doesn't, you don't get that aroma off you. So if you head over to the website, wool.love, check them out. They have a bunch of bundles there. That So the more you buy, the more you save on their website. And if you want to save even more, hit the promo code panoramic 10 Type that into uh, the promo box. Get yourself an extra ten percent off your order. Awesome! You know, when you when you first texted me about the uh, the gift idea for mom, there I was like, man, that's that is a stellar idea. Because although she might not hunt and um, and like fish at all, like she goes on so many hikes and she's done so even more so because of COVID this year. So like I feel like like just the amount that both all all three of us have used that wool elf gear. It, I think it could benefit, you know, anyone for virtually any kind of outdoor activity that you're doing right now, right? So it's not just, you know, kind of a hunting or fishing related garment. Um, it, it, yeah. it, it keeps you comfortable in virtually any of those, or even if you're in the house by the campfire, to be honest, or by the, the wood stove, to be honest, right? So the it's interesting because the one thing like she's been uh, kind of preaching to me a lot this year is, you know, she usually goes on a hot trip for two or three weeks every winter. And she was saying, you know, oh, man, I'm really going to miss that hot trip. But now I'm hoping this kind of lessens her distaste for winter and keeps her a little warmer outside on uh, on her hikes and stuff like that when she's, you know, trying to keep busy and, and trying, to, trying to stay entertained in these uh, COVID times. You heard it here first, folks. Cancel that trip to Mexico. Get yourself in some wool love. You won't regret it. 100% zero regrets. Those are both numbers. Uh, and uh one thing that was it wasn't necessarily under the tree for me but kind of came in uh as you know in and around that christmas season was my package from cowboys caviar that was uh conveniently misplaced last podcast episode but i got that cowboys caviar hat and i was privileged enough to get their latest and greatest which is their cowboys caviar uh jerky like the flat style which I was also really excited about, and it comes in a bigger pack. I got the the candy that your favorite there, Sheldon, and uh, yeah, it, it's kind of exciting to see that they're they're rolling out. They're doing well enough. Obviously, the products are uh, well received, and they're doing well enough to to start diversifying their product line and including like the the uh, the jerky sticks, the longer sticks, the larger packaging, all that kind of stuff, right? Because I'm I'm seeing that coming out in the stores now. And it's kind of exciting to see that all come through. Um, so if you don't know where to get it, I'm I'm getting mine at my local grocery stores. But uh, you can check them out online at CowboysCaviar.com. Make sure you follow them on Instagram to at CowboysCaviar. And uh, they, they've been getting, giving away a ton of jerky. Maybe not a, like a, a literal ton, but like a figurative ton of jerky online. Uh, our buddy there, Steve Pierre, I noticed just won the last package. Lucky Steve. Um, but follow them not only for the latest and greatest on jerky products, but also, you know, a freebie once in a while too. So, and, and on a side note there, Tristan, that those sticks are only available in Saskatchewan until they get some of their, uh, federal approvals finished. So those hopefully will be rolling out in Manitoba and wherever across Canada in the next, uh, within this year, I hope. Okay. Well, I'm sure they'll wrap that up because they, uh, that's a fine product. And I'm kind of excited to think that we were maybe the, the test market in Manitoba for these sticks. Uh, uh, it's kind of exciting because they, uh, you get that different texture with like that flat jerky too, right? 
So yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit more chew to it. I really like it just because it's like um, when I go like on snowmobile, like little snowmobile trip day trips, like into the sand hills or doing whatever, having like um, you know some jerky to to chew on like is kind of a staple in, in your snack bag. So I'm pretty excited for uh, for those to be available in Manitoba so we can buy them. You've referenced the snack bag a few times on the podcast, so I'm just kind of uh, curious. Do you, do you carry an entire bag of snacks? Is it like Santa's pouch, or like what's the what's the what's the method here, Sheldon? Like, are you joking? You and Chase are the worst for <laughs> snacks. You guys have so much. I have like the basics. Basics. It's usually like jerky and like a Gatorade, and then you guys come rolling along. You got a fucking charcuterie board laid out, and but. <laughs> Which brings Speaking us about like hunting adventures and stuff like that, I got a I got a couple I got a couple fun facts I want to share with you guys. Actually, one fun fact, and I got one quiz that I want to see if you guys can get here. But I'm going to start with the fun fact. Fun fact number one. Uh, there's no fun fact number two. So the only fun fact. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and he's a uh, he's a conservation officer here in uh, in Manitoba, and and we're talking about some of the laws and regulations uh, around wildlife and all that. And he kind of said this to me. He's like, did you know that if you own a piece of property, you do not need a hunting license to hunt upland game bird on said piece of property? Okay, so the answer, the answer is your buddy is not a conservation officer. Did I get it right? <laughs> That's the fact. <laughs> That's the fact. Another thing I came across while I was uh, trying to find the end of the internet one day. Do you guys know what, I think it's pronounced gralakin? Do you know what gralakin is? Or gralachin? Is it related to turkeys? Related to what? Turkeys. Uh, it could be, I think. Really? Can you use it in a sentence? I don't think it. I was gralakin uh, about today. I, I, I shot a deer and the gralakin went well. I think that's how you use it. I don't know. I honestly haven't seen it used in like North American. Uh, okay, where did you find North this? American context. <laughs> I found it. It's like uh, a European background to it, but it, it it's like referencing gutting a deer. When you growl something, it's you're gutting a deer. Hmm. Like you're and taking the like, entrails off. There's some like vid- yeah, videos on YouTube about it and stuff like that. So I don't know how I came across it. I found it. Very interesting that I've never heard of it before, though. Well, there you go. We just lost our other seven listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll pick up a couple of European listeners. All of a sudden, uh, those li- those downloads in Europe will spike. But it is New Year's Day today when this gets dropped, I believe, right, Chase? Happy New Year's, folks. Happy New Year's to everyone. Uh, if you're a Canadian listening to this, uh, you'll probably be getting geared up to watch Canada play Finland. Is it today or do they play New Year's Eve? They play New Year's Eve. Okay. So hopefully we're going into the tournament part of the the World Juniors uh, in our number one seed. But, yeah, I'm pretty pumped about hockey. Hockey's returning in two weeks, hockey. two or three weeks now. Hockey's back. It's hard water season. Hopefully things are – they got a vaccine for this COVID Hopefully things are turning up for everyone. Yeah, boy. And uh, just uh, we were we were chatting earlier about cooking, and uh, you know, John, who popped on the podcast with us today, has an interesting journey into the cooking world of sorts. He uh, he was kind of explaining how 
he started off in the cooking world basically using hamburger helper as his his launch point and uh has been expanding ever since um and that's been connected mainly to harvesting and uh processing his own white-tailed deer and other wild game um but john had all kinds of interesting tips and points around cooking processing and uh, what the journey's like so i'm i'm super excited to get this information out there and share with folks the conversation and hear back what uh other people think because i think it paralleled a lot of things that chase and i experienced uh and i'm i'm sure you too sheldon as we kind of evolve our cooking and uh, processing game here yeah i really i really enjoyed the podcast too man and like you said it it just felt like like he was echoing some of our our memories and and our processes as as we as we evolved there and and uh really cool guy really enjoyed speaking with him and uh, we're looking forward to having them back on the podcast sometime in the near future here. Hope you enjoy episode 71. We got John Wallace with you here, folks. Fired up. All right. On the other end here right now, we got John Wallace joining us. Uh, you might know him as the Wild Game Chef. John, how you doing? Hey, doing good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, why don't you tell everyone where you're uh, where you at right now? Where are you coming from? Yeah, so I'm coming from Western Ohio, down in the states, and um, right now it's uh, pretty chilly. We've had a lot of rain, but uh, looking forward to hopefully some colder weather later this week and get out maybe late season archery hunt. Nice, nice. So colder weather. Are you uh, talking snow and a little bit of that white fluffy stuff? Yep, so my in-laws uh, received like 18 inches of snow here the day before Christmas, and uh, they get what they call the lake effect. They're up there by Lake Erie uh, through the Great Lakes. Uh, we got like a dusting of snow. The rain came today, but uh, I think we're going to get a little bit of snow here later in the week. Uh, we don't get like a crazy amount of snow. Like I've got uh, some coworkers who are based out of Minnesota, so their version of cold and my version of cold or, or your version of cold and mine are a little different, but uh, we'll be in like the 20s, you know. That's pretty sweet. I also like the fact that you're still able to slide out uh, and do some whitetail hunting right now. Kind of jealous of that. <laughs> yep. Season goes through the end of January, I believe, archery. And uh, we actually have, starting, uh, I want to say Saturday, we have a four-day muzzleloader or primitive weapon season uh, that goes Saturday through Tuesday. And that'll be the last of our, quote, firearm season. Nice. So I'm, I'm going to kind of deviate a little bit from our, uh, our map of our podcast here, but how do you... How do you typically target those deer when you're out there hunting? Are you hunting big woods or are you hunting ag land or how do you go after them right now? Yeah, great question. So I am in western Ohio, which is uh, super flat compared to the southeastern part of the state, which is uh, unglaciated. It's a lot more forested. Uh, so I actually own nine acres and I've got a six acre field behind me uh, where it was a cornfield this year. So there's a lot of waste grain and uh, I'm hoping for that colder weather because here, um, when it gets really cold, you know, the deer, you know, start to go to those fields. Uh, my dad actually lives in Florida and he hunts a lot in Florida and Georgia. And when it gets cold down there, uh, the deer actually hunker down and don't move. So it's like a whole different dynamic. It's, it's like, they know the cold's not going to last. So they'll just wait it out. Whereas here, obviously when it gets cold, they know they need to get up and get moving. So, um, I've had some, I, I mostly hunt, I would say ag fields since I've been back in Ohio. Nice. Nice. I might have a couple more questions on that topic here uh coming up but 
Before we get too deep into the podcast, I want to kind of we start every every one of our episodes out with uh, a little uh, get to know you. Five burning questions is what we call them. So uh, just five questions that kind of allow the uh, the listeners to get to know you and uh, answer them as you will, man. So the first one I'll start off is uh, if you had one last concert to go to, who would you be going to see? All right. Great question. Um, I will say I'm not a huge concert goer, but I am a lover of music. Um, if I had to go to one, one concert, um, I would probably say it's the one I'm slated to go to, but COVID has thrown a wrench in plan a couple different times now is uh, Garth Brooks. So I've never seen Garth Brooks. My wife last year for our anniversary got me tickets. We were supposed to see him in, I think, June last year. He rescheduled for some other time and that got canceled. So I think we're on pace for this summer. Fingers crossed. Garth Brooks would be my answer. Oh, man. We're feeling the, the COVID effects with concerts, too. We had a couple lined up that got canceled. And Garth Brooks is a good answer, man. I, I One thing that interests me about him is, like, how many calories do you think that guy burns in, in, a, in a show? Like, that guy puts in some effort. Sure. I don't know if he's, like, the same as, like, mid-'90s Garth when he was flying around, but I know he probably wants to hold that same standard. So I'm sure he's pretty... He's a little different than George Strait. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, big time. All right, uh, second question. Your dream hunt right now that uh, I'm sure this changes as, as life goes on for everyone. But uh, if you, you have one last hunt to go on, where would you be going hunting? Sure. So, uh, you know, dream could be tomorrow, right? Like, it's not anything really wild. But I've never been – I've never – I've not yet killed my first elk. And uh, I had a cow tag a couple of years ago, 2017. And I uh, actually had my uncle's bull in my scope um, and actually was able to get him on the bull uh, so that he could kill it. But uh, my dream hunt would be uh, a bull elk hunt uh, probably in Colorado with my uncle. Nice. That sounds like an awesome time. That might be uh, on my list too. Colorado or elk yeah. hunting? But elk hunting in Colorado would be high up there for sure. Yeah, big time. Uh, don't be too complicated with this one, but uh, one last meal. You know uh, you're going to possibly leave this place what do you what's what's going to be on the plate and what are you going to wash that down with uh, that's actually a very easy question and it's going to probably take you off guard but uh it's going to be a mcdonald's double cheeseburger medium fries with a coke and uh, <laughs> wash it down with. oh uh, man guilty pleasures guilty pleasures right for sure and uh it's just i, I didn't eat a whole lot during covid because we didn't go out to fast food a lot but uh man uh, it just it hits different you know yeah for sure uh, fourth question, you're deserted on a island with one person, and I'm going to say this to, uh, I don't know if it's going to help you out or not, but uh, it can't be anybody family related. Who are you going to that, that island with? All right. Um, uh, that's a tough one. I would probably, uh, first answer that popped in my head is probably the one I'll go with, uh, Steve Ranella, meat eater. Um, you know, he'd be able to, uh, help me harvest game and, and things like that and share cool stories with. And, uh, I was looking for someone kind of humorous, you know, cause in a situation like that, you probably want some humor, but I think he'd be a pretty fun time to hang out with. Yeah. Yeah. You certainly be entertained with him. That's for sure. I've seen Steve crack a joke or two in the, in the process, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and our, uh, fifth and final question for you. If, uh, you had one herb to cook with for the rest of your life, what would you be using? Hmm. I don't cook with a lot uh, of, especially fresh herbs. Um, I'd probably say basil. Uh, I like pizza, and I like to either whether it's dried basil or fresh basil on uh, 
box pizza, even just fresh up a box pizza or a homemade pizza, that'd be my answer. Nice. Pretty nice versatile. Right. We use it on uh, Steak Diane, too, as our finishing herb on top as the garnish. Oh, so, yeah. That sounds great. I like that. I like how you brought in the box pizza, too, because that's a lot on my level. A little bit of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, most, most of my cooking is uh, we focus a lot on the cooking of the entree, and a lot of the sides are right out of a can or out of a box. Like We, we do make homemade sides, but I got no shame in putting a can of green beans uh, out there with like the finest backstrap I've got in the freezer. Um, yeah. So we eat a lot of box pizza. We got three kids at the house, so good fun meals. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny you say that too, because uh, um, when I used to spend quite a bit of time in camps, I remember one of my favorite meals was just like whatever kind of meat in the frying pan and boiled potatoes and a can of green beans or not green beans, uh, peas, and like canned canned peas have like a different taste to them, and just like something that always stuck with me is like. That's like a comfort food for me now. Yep. I feel you on the comfort food. That just takes you back on a nostalgia a little bit. Definitely. Definitely. So we're here to talk cooking, but, oh, well, a fair bit of cooking at least. But, uh, John, like most folks know you as the wild game cook, but like what you mentioned, you you do another job that isn't cooking. And uh, what is that kind of work you're lined up with right now? All right, so I work, uh, I've been with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever for over 10 years now. So they're a Habitat profit. They're based out of St. Paul, Minnesota. I believe we have chapters in Calgary, uh, maybe a couple of other places up in Canada. Um, but uh, it's a Habitat nonprofit. We've got biologists all over the country who work with private landowners who put conservation habitat in the ground. And then uh, we've also got uh, chapters all across the country. And I'm kind of like the hype man. So I'm like the flavor Flav of Pheasants <laughs> Forever. Uh, I just kind of keep them motivated, keep them on task. Uh, if they got any questions, concerns, I try to make their volunteer life easy. Cool. That that uh, We don't have a Pheasants Forever in Manitoba here, but, uh, you know, it, it sounds similar to a lot of the work that maybe something like a Ducks Unlimited or Delta kind of does in our area. Or we have a, huge, a couple um, – like the Manitoba Heritage Conservation Trust too as well, which kind of like main goal is to preserve hunting territory or like outdoor use territory and, and, and keep certain habitat, you know, in, in proper shape. So I think we got a feel for it, but I, it would be interesting if we had, we, I think we have like um, domestic pheasants over here, but no, like no wild population real. Sure. That's funny you bring that up about Ducks, and, uh, Ducks Unlimited. We are very similar, and we work with them on a national level together with like a, a just a partnership. Uh, but you know, when you're down here in Ohio, and a lot of our Ducks Unlimited chapters, they raise money, and where's that money go? It goes to the nesting grounds, which are where in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the money, in a sense, spent locally in your backyard. So what makes Presence Forever and Quail Forever unique is that our model allows for the volunteers to determine where they spend 100% of their money. So and then we always kind of jokingly say or corniely say that pheasants and quail don't migrate, so neither should your dollars. Um, so with volunteers having 100% control of how they spend their money, my job is to treat them really well, to make them as successful as they can be, so that we can funnel money to the state initiatives and then ultimately up north to the organization or national initiatives to keep the whole mechanism moving. So I've worked in Arkansas. I've worked in Louisiana, uh, which are historically duck hunting states. Um, Quail Forever is the brand down there, and that's basically just the vehicle they're driving. So that vehicle allows them to spend their money on a local level, doing wetlands locally, doing habitat projects locally. Um, so you don't necessarily need to have pheasants. We have 
chapters everywhere where there are no pheasants or are no quail. Um, but you can still get together. You can get new hunters out. Yeah. Um, you can get youth hunters out. Um, there's a lot now with obviously field to table, you know, knowing where your food comes from. So, uh, yeah, take a look at us. Cool. And that, that's cool to think that, uh, imagine how the, the volunteers get a kind of a say in, in how their dollars are spent and maybe what, what projects they're passionate about. Cause often the community where those dollars are coming from often knows best on how uh, that money can be spent in a lot of ways, right? Boots on the ground kind of. Exactly. We actually just, it's, it's really a model to keep our volunteers more engaged and they last and stick around a lot longer because they can see the fruit of their labor. Amazing. That's super cool. Yeah, do something a part of something bigger, you know? Yeah, building that connection for sure. And then so on the other half of the connection here that we're, we're, ch- we're kind of going to chat about today is like, and I was reading some of your story just online and about how you kind of emerged into the cooking uh, world or at least the wild game cooking side of things. And uh, quite a, quite a interesting route in some ways, but like where did you get your start for our, our listeners here in, in, you know, wild game harvesting and maybe, you know, what piqued the curiosity with the cooking? Sure. So um, a lot of people do think I'm a chef or like I started in the culinary world first. And uh, I actually, so I grew up uh, in a hunting family. Uh, my parents didn't directly hunt, but my uncles took me out. I started out small game hunting, squirrel hunting. And uh, I started hunting uh, deer when I was 14, 15. And I think I harvested my first deer at 15. Um, I always took my deer to the processors and I did that for nearly 12 years uh, just because that's just what you did. Right. Um, you know, you went, you'd spend a hundred, $120 as, as was our cost and just to get ground meat, steaks and roasts. Um, and I got to the point where I was just like, man, like that's a lot of money. I, I got hunt to try to hunt for free, you know, like to get free meat uh, or at least, you know, I always tell my wife, you know, it, it's free cause you're paying for the hobby, but, um, in the culinary stuff, like once I went to college, you know, there was no one to cook meals anymore. So I had to cook. And I always tell people jokingly, like, this is body built by hamburger helper. You know, like we ate a ton of hamburger helper growing up and in college. And we had a whole pantry full of every flavor known to man. And, uh, you just got tired of eating it. So I, I actually, the first dish I can remember making that had some culinary flair to it, and you'll get a kick out of this. My roommates and I used to buy a big, long, roll of Tyson chicken patties and chicken patties are versatile. You could eat them as a chicken patty. Uh, it could be a mayonnaise sandwich. It could be a uh, Buffalo style. Uh, we used to chunk it up and make it into calzones. Uh, but I had this dish where I would buy pasta, penne pasta, a bottle of ragu white Alfredo sauce, um, and the chicken patty and shredded cheese. And it was just chicken pasta is all it was. And I, I realized like something was missing. So we added the tomato for acidity. I then realized why the acidity was needed to cut the fat and whatnot. And we still make that dish. I've been married with my wife for uh, 15 years next year. And we still make that dish on the fly because it's quick and easy. Um, and so I just found a love for cooking. I got married in 2006. And I remember it was about 2012 when I finally started processing my own meat and wanted to take it to the next level that I, I made a back a black pepper crusted backstrap and it was from watching the food network like i just i'm a a cook who's basically learned off of watching hours and hours of food network and um she made this uh her name was ina garden or something like that she's really well known and uh, she made a filet mignon crusted with black pepper and i was like i could totally do that with backstrap and so i had a butterfly backstrap which i don't do anymore but it sure looked fancy on the plate 
And I remember I took a picture of it. And that was like the first time I ever took a picture of what I ate, right? Which is so huge. <laughs> and I just saw a memory of that came up because I actually had the Christmas tree in the background of the photo. So 2012 was when I kind of found a passion for wild game cooking um, and taking it to the next level. And it's just slowly grown from there. I think I jumped on Instagram on thir- in 2013. I was in the deer woods, actually. And I uh, heard a lot of people talking about Instagram. I was like, I'll, I'll see what all this is about. And um, I had actually had the handle Wild Game Chef for a brief minute. I mean, like a brief minute. I'm like, I'm not a chef. You know, like I don't wear a white coat. I don't wear a hat. I don't, uh, I'm not trained formally. I'm like, I'm a wild game cook. You know, I'm a home cook. And uh, it just, it grew from there. And I've just kind of done the same thing ever since. And people seem to like it. Do you, do you, when, when you're thinking about dishes and stuff like that, do you do do a lot of like kind of all day cooks or are you putting together your dishes um in like a family sense like you said you have kids wife so are you are your dishes kind of set up like for like family life where you know you only get like an hour to cook before supper time maybe or something like that or are you doing a lot of like fancier stuff too um it's a hodgepodge of everything i would say it's give or take 50 50 both family oriented we've got practice later tonight we've got a small window to make dinner uh, we're going to make this or that. Um, I also work from home and I've done so for like seven years now. So I can definitely see myself getting into the kitchen about three, four o'clock some days and prepping the meat or doing some things where we kind of go a little bit next level. And it's just not, um, you know, chicken pasta or just a quick uh, deer tacos or something like that. Um, I will say, too, my, my wife doesn't get a fair number, a fair share of her credit. Um, not only does she cook a lot of the, the quick and easy wild game meals, but she's also making those uh, very fast, you know, meals that we need to make because we're on a time crunch. So I probably do. I do my fair share of cooking. I'd say greater than 50 percent. A lot of times we're both in the kitchen together working on meals. Um, but I, I, I don't do a lot of low and slow. I don't do a lot of all day cooks or all day prep or anything crazy fancy as it relates to time because we are busy. But if my schedule is available I, I can see myself very easily being in the kitchen at 4 o'clock, 4.30. And, you know, we typically eat around 5, 5.36. It kind of varies. But, you know, I take an hour and a half to two hours to kind of prep dinner, uh, especially if it's a nice cut, if it's backstrap or something like that. Um, we do. We just bought an instant pot uh, mm-hmm. pressure cooker, which I think we're probably behind the game on that. But uh, we made Mississippi pot roast last night for its maiden voyage. And it was heavenly. Um, I don't know if you guys know what Mississippi pot roast is. Um, so I can explain it really quickly. So it's just a, a chuck roast or venison of some sort, uh, maybe a pound to three pounds worth. You throw in a packet of dried au jus mix, a dried packet of ranch dressing, um, a cup of pepperoncinis, some of the sauce from the pepperoncinis, and a stick of butter. And you just put it in the crock pot for like six to eight hours, and it comes out unbelievably flavorful and good uh, we did it in the instapot for an hour and then it kind of had to like release its pressure for like 30 minutes and it was unbelievable uh, it definitely i've gotten away from a lot of the crock pot meals because i just feel like the water it's sitting in there for eight hours kind of zaps the, the moisture out of the meat uh, but that's definitely one of my wife's favorite cooking methods because she can turn it on she can leave me a note to say hey turn this on at 10 o'clock and then when we get home and everything it's ready by the time everyone gets there um, but Mississippi pot roast is definitely like the dish. I'd say it's the dish of 2020 and it'll definitely carry over into 2021. 
Uh, just a quick Google search. I mean, I don't have any fancy recipe. They're all about the same. Um, but it, it's worth trying. It's like a, I told some coworkers this because we're always trying to find new hunters uh, to get new hunters out. And it's a gateway meal, right? They're talking about gateway drugs, like Mississippi pot roast, duck poppers, dove poppers. It's a gateway drug. If you serve someone Mississippi pot roast, uh, they're going to either want to go hunt deer themselves or they're going to continue to allow you to hunt on their property, right? If you make it for a landowner or something who allows you to hunt, uh, you'd be in, in like Flint, as they say. That's interesting, John, because we've chatted on the podcast a few times before. Like we, we've got our comfort foods that we've carried over from, like we've said, our father's kind of style of cooking. Um, mine, mine would be like a, uh, uh, roast done in, uh, with mushroom soup mix, for example, and some onions. Um, and, uh, maybe some of the chefs would turn their nose up at that, but we've, uh, we, we still enjoy it. But at some point we had this kind of aha moment where we also realized that, you know, that, that chunk of backstrap can be treated, uh, very, in a very special manner as well and, uh, transformed into something completely different. Um, I want to circle back kind of to the, the black and backstrap that you, you first started out with there. Did it turn out? Did it, uh. Did it hit the mark? Sure. Well, it most certainly did. And I only say that um, because, you know, when you kill something, you process it yourself and you cook it, it's going to taste amazing to you now. Everyone else, you know, it may not hit the mark, but for you personally or selfishly, like it's going to be great. And um, for what it's worth, I remember it, you know, pretty vividly. So I mentioned I butterflied it and that's, I only butterfly it because that's what the processors do. You know, they make kind of like a two inch cut, you cut that in half, and you've got this little three quarter inch thick butterfly backstrap, uh, a butterfly chop, they may call it, right? And uh, it's very easy to overcook. So I'm sure it probably wasn't to the doneness in which I would have liked, but we did cover it with mushrooms, onions, and garlic, which is always like a, a huge thing, you know? So it just, you know, it was amazing. And then you talked about um, kind of, having your comfort foods and your comfort zone. I'm a habitual comfort zone cooker and believe it or not, it, it takes a good bit of coercing to get me out of it. I love eating tacos and just the same stuff I always eat. Um, but I realized, you know, as hunters, we oftentimes go through a process of like, uh, progressing through these different, um, levels where like you first become a hunter, you just want to kill something, right? And then you want to limit out. And then you get to the point where you want to kill it with a different implement, right? You go from a rifle to a bow or from a bow to a recurve, um, to a muzzleloader, whatever. And then you get to where you just want to take someone else out to enjoy it. And then you get to the point where you want to go out and you, you kill the animal with your camera. You're just taking pictures of it. And it's just this whole process. And I think wild game eating is the same way, right? You want to eat it wrapped in bacon, marinated for four days, throw away the venison, eat the bacon, you know, and then you move to where you, you don't marinate it for as long, but you still got it in bacon and you're eating the venison and to where you're mixing your ground meat with all the different things you can mix it with to go into straight venison. And ultimately you find your way back to where it is you really like. So, you know, I mix my venison with uh, 20% pork fat, you know, uh, and that's what I like. I sometimes eat my backstrap with A1 steak sauce, which I never would have done, you know, years ago. But if I'm in the mood for A1, I'm going to eat my backstrap with A1, you know. Um, as long as you're eating it and respecting it, you know, whatever it takes to get you to eat it, you know, this, that's why I'm kind of on Instagram is just to inspire people to eat it in different ways other than wrapped in bacon or spaghetti or tacos or jerky or snack sticks. You know, I see someone turns a whole deer into jerky or snack sticks and Hey, if they're eating, <laughs> it, 
By all means, man, because like, everyone comes from different parts, too, right? Like, I've got my best friend. His in-laws own a very nice beef farm. So they have a freezer full of porterhouses and ribeyes and T-bones all year long. So for him, venison and deer meat is definitely lower on the hierarchy than beef. It's more of a, a novelty when they have it. Whereas in my house, it, like venison reigns king, right? Like it's it fills the freezer. It's our number one go-to red meat. We don't buy beef. So, you know, some people can't imagine turning your backstrap into, you know, you name it. Uh, what would it be? Jerky. I know people who turn backstrap into jerky and some people would just be livid. And it's like they're just in, you just got to realize they're in a different position than you are um, theoretically. And, you know, they may have they may kill eight to ten deer based upon where they're at. So they you can only eat so much steak. Why would you want to eat a marginal steak when you could have nothing but great steaks? Right. Um, but if you only kill one deer a year, um, you want to be very respectful and, and uh, you know, enjoy those cuts. So those are just some of the things I've seen over the years. A major part of your journey seemed to be. Uh, taking on that butchering process and that kind of the evolution of being more connected to the animal that way. Um, and I, I, we, 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 we've been trying to do some of that ourselves too. Uh, definitely like um, we used to take our elk in, for example, and we've started to undertake cleaning our own elk when we get them too. Um, so it's, it's definitely a learning journey, but what was it like on your end? Because I almost forget some days what it's like to like have a deer hanging for and seeing it for the first time in your shed or something like that, right? So again, I think it's a story we're telling. So in 2012, I was hunting on my buddy's property, and there wasn't a whole lot of deer movement. It's a 90-acre farm, and uh, they just kind of travel through. But there had been a fawn and a button buck traveling together. Obviously, I'm assuming brother and sister, and we ended up shooting. Um, I want to say it was the button buck first. I didn't know it was a button buck, but I shot it. And I knew it was 105 pounds dressed because that's what the processor told me. And sure enough, there's like 120 bucks to turn it into ground steaks and roast. No, nothing fancy, no brats, no jerky, no nothing, just the basics. And I remember talking to my buddy. I'm like, man, I was like, they got me again. You know, he's like, John, we could do it right here in the barn. And I was like, you know what? Sure. We, we could totally do it. So he goes in his house, and I end up shooting what I assume, honestly, was this other deer, because there just wasn't a lot of deer uh, on the farm. But it was a week or two later. I shoot this deer. It's arguably the same exact size, pound per pound. Um, I got 37 pounds of meat back from the processor that year from that particular deer. He goes in his house. He picks out any bowl and Tupperware that his wife may have that we could put this deer in, because we don't have any meat lugs or anything like that at this point. We get out our knives. We get out our cutting boards, and we just start hacking away. Like, we know flat out we're going to butcher some of these cuts, uh, but our mindset the whole time was is we're going to get things that maybe the processor overlooks because they're in a really big hurry. Um, and we may lose some things that they have the knife skills that we don't, right? And so we hack away. I do my best to turn it into butterfly steaks and everything else, and we get 45 pounds of meat, right? So, like, what, seven pounds more, eight pounds more out of the same size animal? And... You know, I've seen a lot and I've heard a lot, you know, just working around processors. And I used to work for the state, some different things. But, like, it wouldn't be anything for a processor to take a pound of backstrap, you know, out of a six, seven-pound backstrap. And you'd never know. And, it, you know, it just it would add up. And I'm not saying that there's not honest processors out there, but I just know for a fact, based upon stories and such, that there's people who pinch that stuff off and keep it for themselves and so on. So, like, knowing that I'm getting my deer back, knowing that I'm the one who's touching it, 
uh, where it's been, what temperature it was at, what, you know, were there any deer that were gut shot that were next to it, that it may have been contaminated. Um, you know, I know all that. Um, and then so crazy enough for like four years, like I started in 2012, I'd say up until really just three years ago, then I like say 2017. So four or five years, I did the same exact thing. The process was good. Backstrap, or um, steaks, ground, and roast. The one thing that I did do and I graduated to, and I think I saw it on like a Steve Rennell episode or something, was I started taking my backstraps and I quit butterflying them and I just froze them in like six to eight inch logs, right? But then once you have that, then you can turn it into butterfly backstrap if you want, but you can also do a, a roll down, flattened, stuffed backstrap. You can do any number of things. And then so I graduated to doing that. And then I started to keep certain cuts like the shanks. So I used to always grow the shanks. And I think there's a, a big movement of people finally realizing you really don't want a much connective tissue that's hard to put out. If you're doing something fast like burgers or tacos, like you're going to totally gnaw on that. So that's what we use for our standalone roast in our house is shanks. And we turn the top rounds, the bottom rounds, the sirloin tips either into ground or we turn them into pastrami or corned beef or, or whatever. But our, our low and slow roast cuts, we use our shanks. And uh, I finally invested in a stuffer. And that allowed me to do summer sausage because I wasn't comfortable using my grinder. So that opened up some doors. And then when I finally got the stuffer, I then made the commitment to get natural casings. And I did brats and Italian sausage. And that opens up a whole other world of things you can do with your venison. Because you can only eat tacos, spaghetti, meatloaf, and steaks so many times throughout the year. But when you add to your portfolio brats and Italian sausage and breakfast links and kielbasa and all this other stuff now you're eating venison in different ways at different times of the year you're grilling out more you're doing different things so we used to only really need two deer a year to kind of feed us now our boys are growing they're 10 they're 11 our, our daughter is six but now that we're eating venison at the table more times in different ways you know we can five deer this year i say we my boys who are 11 and 10 dropped five deer this year which is wild and uh we still have plenty of space in the freezer, and I'm not saying I'm actively looking for more deer, but we have a ton of paste sausages. We have plenty of summer sausage, which now I can give away uh, to landowners as gifts. I can take them to the holidays. I can use them as thank you gifts for people who do you know nice things for me, things like that. We've got snack sticks for the first time, jerky. Like We've got all of the things that if I were to take to a processor, would probably be a $300 bill. And I've got some money invested in it, but really... If you think about it all as part of the hobby, like I don't really have anything invested in it, right? Um, it's only been part of the hobby and the meat's free. So pretty cool. <laughs> I'll have um, to remember that one for later. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, I always say that, hey, if I wanted to golf, and I like to golf, but I don't do it very often because I don't like paying for it. And if I go golf and spend $30, what do I get when I come home, right? Nothing but a headache. And if I spend $31 on a deer tag or a hunting license, you know, like I could probably, I can come home with something, right? 40 pounds of meat, 80, 90 pounds of meat. Um, so if I, at least if I'm golfing, I'm not bringing anything back. If I'm hunting and I'm paying to, I'm paying to golf, if you will, but I'm actually hunting. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a product that can come back to you. So it's a hobby that provides benefits. So uh, what do you want me to do? Go golf all the time or go hunting? And then she almost always says, fine, go hunting. It's like, all right, see? <laughs> Man, you were, you were preaching the same words that we have preached for many times sitting around the dinner table or around the 
the table. And, and it's, I love your breakdown of, uh, of just the deer and, and how you guys, uh, stretch it out even more with the sausage making and, and stuff like that. Because often we find we, we, we've taken that step probably about like five or six years ago where we were kind of like, okay, sausage is so damn expensive, man. Like, why aren't we making this stuff ourselves? Like you said, there's a couple big upfront costs on the, uh, on the grinders and stuffers and stuff like that. But, um, you save a bundle of money. And plus the, the big thing that always goes through our mind is like the same thing that you said, is there somebody else's gut shot deer or a deer that's somebody didn't skin properly and is full of hair going into the same grind mixes that, that your deer is going into, you know what I mean? And, uh, the funny thing is sausage has almost become like the most utilized piece of our wild game that we, that we, uh, put together. Now we still use obviously a lot of the, the back straps and some of the bigger roasts and stuff for fancier meals, but sausage, man, we, we take it ice fishing. We, before COVID hit, we used to, you know, sit around the dinner table with five, six, seven, eight friends. And that'd be like the, the main course with a, with a round of beers kind of thing. You know what I mean? And it was, it was often something that brought a lot of people together and, and things that we could tell stories around and, and have these good times around and that everyone enjoys. Nobody's afraid to eat. Right. And so here's a couple of things I think will hopefully make making sausage a little bit more approachable for people from someone who put it off for years. I mean, I put it off for like five, six years. I was like, I'm not messing with that. It's too intimidating. And I think most sportsmen, especially those who are doing their own processing, they have a grinder. I think that's a fair assumption. They have a grinder. And most grinders come with the sausage stuffing tubes and everything. So if you wanted to do it with your grinder, you most certainly could. And that leads into my next point is it doesn't have to look great to taste great. So you're going to blow out some of your casings. Um, they're not all going to be the same shape, uh, but they're going to taste phenomenal. Not only because obviously they will taste phenomenal, but they're going to taste phenomenal because again, you made it. So you're going to take that, ad- that additional pride into it. Um, I will say that if you can buy a stuffer and you can get them fairly well priced, I'm sure you can buy used ones. It makes all the difference. And Buy natural casings. Don't buy collagen casings. I've tried both, and natural casings are definitely the way to go. They're a little harder to use, but then again, if you break them out, those are the first ones to get eaten, right? Those are the chef's treats that nobody knows about. They go on the grill or they go in a pan before they even get frozen. Um, So it's not that intimidating, and really once you've made a couple of links and you've made a couple of pounds even, it's really, I'm not saying you've mastered it by any means, but and you don't have to go into any fancy recipes. So, like, you can get really wild with sausage making, right? You could have all kinds of complex ingredients inside there. I'll be honest. I just use, like, the packets, like, whatever the packet comes with. If it says brat seasoning, Polish sausage, um, andouille sausage, like, I just mix it in with the meat and stuff it. I'm not making any recipes. I'll get to that point. Like I said, that you could argue that sausage making has that gradual graduation as well to these different layers right charcuterie and a bunch of other dried stuff i'm just making the basics and it tastes phenomenal so don't be intimidated by making meats watch youtube watch a couple of youtube videos and you'll have it damn near mastered well john i feel like you're in our head because i think we're on on like the fourth year of our, our sausage making journey and we're kind of at that point where we've devised a couple recipes and we're starting to tinker with them 
Um, one thing I'll add is make sure you keep track of your recipes once you start making your own or even when you if you start with a set recipe, keep track of what you did because you it, it's a often it's a long time before you're back at the sausage table. And uh, if you don't remember what you mixed and what went well and what went poorly, um, you're, you're going to be back to square one next season, unfortunately, right? So make sure you keep track of that. Do you have a meat mixer yet, John? I do not. Um, yeah, our hands are frozen too, so. Yeah, I got um, just, I only have so much space at yeah. the house, you know? So like the grinder and the stuffer and the slicer and the dehydrator all takes up space, so I don't mind getting my hands dirty, but I, I do see certain recipes and certain types of sausages that I think would be more, it would be better suited if you used a meat mixer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's on my mind, but I do not own one. Yeah, I, I think I would appreciate it just because I, we, when we make sausage, I often look over at Chase and like, I just like look at my hands and they, they just feel numb because they've been in like 30 pounds of, uh, you know, mixed pork and, and slightly frozen venison for the past 10 minutes. And, uh, but I, I think that's the way to do it. You build your equipment up piece by piece too, right? You get those important pieces you talked about. And uh, even even tubs, you know, getting the right tubs has made a difference for us, I find. And uh, do it piece by piece. And you learn what you need too, right? So. so, good point. So when I did that first deer in 2012, uh, my buddies, we just pinched together a bunch of stuff and we made it work. Um, and I did have a vacuum sealer because we had uh, registered for one when we got married, you know, years back. So we had a vac sealer. Um, but that following year I made an investment, uh, was actually with Cabela's at that point. I, I think I spent, it was under $600. I think it was like 560, 580. And I bought a stainless table. So it's like a six foot by two foot. That was actually two over $200 of the investment. I bought a couple of big rolls of the back sealer bags. I bought three tubs. I bought the outdoor edge butchering kit. That's got all the different knives in it. Um, I bought a cut resistant glove cause I'm a little sloppy with my knife work and I knew I'd be cutting myself. So I bought one of those and probably a couple of things I'm missing, but arguably the table, the tubs, I already had the back sealer. Uh, we did buy like a little tape dispenser. I think they call them neck, neck sealers where you take your little ground meat bags, you, you twist it and put it through the tape dispenser. And that came with a roll of tape that I'm still using today. So it's like $25 investment. Um, so yeah, I think I spent 560 bucks and I'd say I was using all of that equipment, the same roller bags for every bit of three or four seasons, but it really paid for itself after like two seasons when I got three, four deer on the ground. Um, and I was like, so I'm still using the same table. I'm still using the same meat lugs. I'm still using the same butchering kit, um, eight years down the road. And you're getting an extra eight pounds of meat in the freezer with every deer that you put through there too. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a really, rewarding thing and i'm gonna say this it's a love-hate relationship man like i love doing it especially once the work's all done but like i'm not gonna say i'm good at processing it but it it, i would say it probably takes me about five hours a deer and that may sound like a long time but i'm i am thoughtful i'm not meticulous about getting a bunch of stuff off the meat i am thoughtful about what i'm going to use with the cuts how i want it trimmed things like that and over the last couple years what i've tried to do is take some different steps to cut down on my time in which I'm handling the meat just for my own time's sake, right? Like my time's valuable. So I started to leave my silver skin on the back straps and freeze it that way. So that when I thaw it out, then I could take it off. That saves time. Um, I didn't do it this year, but I'm going to do it next year. When I have a, a hind quarter, let's say where I'm taking those whole muscle cuts out of there, 
I'm not gonna I'm gonna trim all the nasty like blood and stuff off and hair, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna trim it ready for the pot when I freeze it. I'm just gonna make sure it's clean, freeze it, and then trim it before I cook it. I know a lot of folks when they're ready to eat, they want to take it out, thaw it out, and cook. You know, I work from home, so I've got the ability that I have that time to uh, to trim it up. But um, I think my my grind is pretty clean. Um, not to say there's not silver skin and maybe a little fat in there, um, but I'm not. There's not a lot of waste in my, like there's not a lot of waste. I guess is what I'm saying, which I'm pretty proud about because you know you don't want to waste anything if you can help it. I do. I'll put this out there so it's on the record for a challenge for me. But I'm gonna try to do a better job of keeping my bones next year to make more stock. I, I used to always we didn't have room in the freezer, so to have all these bones in there would really take up a lot of space. And we did a couple years ago invest in a second stand up freezer, so I do have the space. And uh, so I'm going to do a better job next year making more venison stock. So, when when you're referencing time to uh, to butcher an animal, there, John, it's something that I've really kind of thought about over the last few years. And as as we've evolved into the whole butchering and self processing, and and again further into the cooking portion, um, like you said, those those shanks have become like a very prized cut in my household, anyways. And uh, you know that we kind of save them for like fancier special meals almost you know it's like that's going to be a good meal you want like nice mashed potatoes or rice or pasta to put it in or something like that right done right but i've i've gone uh gotten to the point where i actually take most of my front quarters and saw them right in half and freeze them like that and uh intentionally making them into more of like a pot roast style slow cooked roast and that combined with the shank saves a hell of a lot of deboning time and man you want to speed up your processing time and uh keep your knife sharp that uh sign those those front quarters in half and putting those shanks in the freezer sure speeds things up a lot that's a great tip um yeah we call them down here we call them blade roasts so they've got that blade shoulder blade in there um i will say this uh i've learned over the years to start with the hardest or the the not fun stuff first so if i shoot a deer in, in the ribs or in the shoulder and i've got a bunch of stuff i've got to clean out that's what i start with it sucks but that's i get it out of the way and then i move to the front shoulders which nowadays i mostly just um other than the shank part of it you know i i grind up um and then i move to the hind quarters which is my favorite well hind quarters and then back strap is the last thing right but yeah if i didn't have to mess with deboning out those shoulders that would 100 percent save uh possibly about an hour maybe you know so um i may have to take you up on that too well and i think you guys are onto something too because i've read that leaving those cuts in larger uh as larger meat parcels or larger cuts and leaving silver skin on is actually like a protective means for uh well it's in the freezer right like they'll fight off the the uh freezer burn longer if it's got kind of you know a larger chunk of it and there's that silver skin on even right so most certainly, yeah. That's why I was doing it with the backstraps. So Stephen Mello Mediator uh, turned me on to that, and I, I ignored it for a couple of years. Like my OCD kind of would not allow me to keep it on there because I had never done it that way. And I'm telling you, like this year, I processed five beer in a week in my garage, and I was ready to be done after the second one. So I was like, this is the perfect opportunity to just let it fly. For it looks really nice in the package, to be honest, and. As he says on the TV show, like you don't want to give that backstrap away to someone who's a novice who may make the mistake of cooking it with that on there. Um, 
So, you know, you would never want to give that away as a gift to someone who wasn't familiar with what they needed to do. But I don't typically give backstrap away, uh, but I will always try to invite folks to the house to enjoy the backstrap. Um, you mentioned a special occasion earlier. So I've actually got to where I put SO, uh, or like a star SO on my packages, meaning special occasion. If we have good friends over, or it's New Year's, or it's Christmas, or something of that nature, an anniversary dinner, um, there's a, a short list of cuts on a deer. Shanks being one, uh, what I call the tails of the, tin, uh, the backstrap, or the upper part, uh, closer to the neck. Those are always super tender. So I'll typically take both of those together and pair them together. Um, with like the center cut of a backstrap, or if I leave one really long for some reason, uh, more of like what I call a party pack, when we take our sausages, we typically put four or five to a pack for us, but we may put eight or ten in a pack, and I'll call it a party pack. And that's, we're not going to fall that out for just our small family, so it like encourages us to have people over to make it more of a social um, social thing. And of course, this year, this last summer, totally screwed all my plans in regards to grilling out broth and, and all this other stuff with COVID and not being able to you know, comfortably have people over. So hopefully it all works. And uh, I've got a lot of great food in the freezer to be sharing with some folks. Oh, awesome. And I, I also find too, like you mentioned, you, you might wrap the, the sausages in larger packs and mark as a party pack that, uh, and you mentioned like gateway meals for people. I, I find that uh, sausage is a, a perfect gateway meal for a lot of people because it's still, um, you know, it's a very accessible food. And at the same time, I, I don't know, there seems to be some, like, lore around deer sausage, at least in our community. So, like, people who don't hunt will vocally ask for deer sausage, but sometimes if you offer them just that whole cut, they, you know, they wouldn't know what to do with it necessarily. So I think it's oftentimes a much more accessible way to, to, to get that food, right? So if we're on the same page, when you say sausage... Are you referring to like cased meats, like say an Italian sausage or brat, or are you referring to summer sausage where it looks more like bologna? Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, I, like a cased meat or something like that. Yeah. So like we this year, for example, we made uh, uh, maple jalapeno bratwurst. Uh, we made uh, a Cuba sauce style garlic garlic sausage, and uh, our last one would be like a pepperoni. Um, so, and all of those I think would be like pretty accessible or uh you know folks were able to cook those relatively easy without having to you know really think hard if you haven't eaten a lot of wild game for sure i'm I'm in lockstep with you on that um i actually experimented you know everyone always likes to keep the deer heart it's definitely become very popular on social media to cook the heart and i'll admit like i i keep them every time as long as they're not shot um I've not found a couple, I've not found just really comfortable ways or easy ways to make it taste great. Um, so I kept them for a couple of years. Like I'll get to it. I'll get to it. You know, I ended up acquiring like six deer hearts in the freezer and I wanted to make some sausage and I didn't have any. Um, I just, I took some, I took the deer hearts and I took some, uh, shanks, which I didn't want to do, but it was all I had in the freezer. It was during quarantine is what it was. And I was, I was getting rid of older cuts and I was cleaning out the freezer and, and I made a broth. Uh, that's just brought seasoning from uh, LEM products, and it was like 50-50 deer meat and deer hearts, right? I trimmed up the deer hearts real nice. Once I chopped it up with a knife, you wouldn't even notice that it looked different. I posted it on my feed. You'd have to go back to uh, April, March, April, somewhere in there maybe. Um, hell, I don't know. It may have been last year. I don't remember, but 
Point being, my father-in-law, who's from Cleveland, their city folks, he always calls it mystery meat, no matter what I have, whether it's uh, deer meat, duck, what mystery meat you got for me, Wally, you know? And I'm like, just eat it, you know, just put it in your mouth and eat it. And he still doesn't know to this day. I hope he doesn't listen. I hope he listens to your podcast, and I hope he doesn't listen to your podcast. But uh, he said, this is the best concoction you've ever made. He And he didn't know, and he still doesn't know to this day that it was half deer heart. Because if he did, he never would have tried it. And it had a 10% uh, high-temp cheddar cheese in there as well. It was really creamy. Um, it made a great sausage and, you know, it was a great way to utilize. I mean, I, I know I had close to five or six pounds of deer hearts, you know, because you got to say that they're probably about almost a pound a piece. Um, so it's a great way to, to make your meat go longer. And if you're not keeping your heart, uh, anyone listening out there, you should be. Um, I'm not going to lie. I wear gloves and I feel dressed my deer. Not ashamed to admit it. And when I, uh, when I reach in there and I grab that heart and when I put it to the side and when I'm done processing, I put it in my hand and I pull my glove inside out and then I put that heart in my pocket uh, and it keeps it protected and such. So you've got like a built-in bag if you wear gloves. So little tip there. Man, I, I uh, kind of on the journey of on uh, using more of the animal stuff, I've, I've been keeping my hearts uh, as much as I can, like you said, when they're not shot up and all that stuff. But I will say like this year is the first year that I've, really really enjoyed uh the product that i've gotten out of cooking a deer heart and it's it's been like probably like a five-year journey now where things were just kind of okay coming out of the frying pan or how i cooked them or whatever and every you know you hear these stories of oh the heart the heart i love the heart kind of thing i was like the first couple years i was like man i don't get it yet but (laughs) hopefully i do soon (laughs) and then this year it turned out just phenomenal just kind of did like a a rare sear on uh, on these like thinly sliced pieces of heart, and it, it was really enjoyable. And uh, yeah, man, I was actually looking in uh, the sausage book I have when you're talking about heart sausage, and uh, a butcher sausage is called in the book had uh, a bunch of heart meat in it for uh, the ingredients. So it's definitely so- something to try out. Yeah, you, you're, you're the same place I was in regards to, you know, the dishes. Like, they were edible, but they weren't, like, knock your socks off, you know. And um, I'll say this. It's, a lot of it's all mental. Of course, there's a texture with heart that's different than other cuts. Um, but it's definitely mental because I've got my three kids, and they've grown up knowing nothing but pretty much eating wild game as their sole source of protein, right, for the, for the uh, meat. And if I make a heart, and my wife honestly just doesn't believe we should eat organs. She just... It took her a long time to even eat backstrap, let alone, you know, the, the liver of something or whatever. But she's coming around. But I know that it has to be perfect for me to really, like, push it towards her, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll make it. And let's say I make it and, and I'll take a bite and it's just, like, not up to my standards. I'll just kind of look at her and I kind of give her this look like, nah, nah, you don't, don't worry about it tonight. You know, like, you don't want to try it. And then I, I yell for the kids down the hallway. I'm like, hey, the heart's ready. And they come rolling in and they eat it right off the cutting board. And like, it never even makes it to the table. So like, and I mean, they genuinely love it. And it's just like, because there's an allure to it, that it's the heart and it's from the animal that we harvested. And, um, so that makes me feel good because I, I'll, I'll never waste it. Like I would have found a way to eat it myself or whatever, but I know it in the sense right now, I've got three backup plans that one of my kids, if not all of my kids will fight over it to eat it. <laughs> and so I'm not making that up. Like it's so wild. Like a lot, we have, we live, we live in the city, give or take. And I said, we got nine acres, but we're close to the city. And some of their friends and their parents, the friends of their friends' parents, you know, they look at me like I'm some sort of crazy Bushman living in like the 1860s. It's like, no, like 
I just kill these animals and I, I eat them like, you know, someone else is killing your animal for you. And, you know, mm-hmm. kids just don't know any different. If, if they don't know what it is, I tell them it is X, Y, Z out of the freezer or whatever, depending on what it is. Um, but they're just really curious to, to try new things, especially if my energy is high on it. Like if I'm really excited to try something new or it's, you know, whatever it may be, even if it's like deer tongues. So like I tried an elk tongue from my uncle's bull elk a few years ago and, um, I kept it and, you know, it was pretty gnarly looking, you know, it looks like a tongue until it doesn't, you know, once you peel it off. And of course there's a lot of substance to that elk tongue. And I made uh, tacos de lingua from Hank Shaw and it was amazing. And uh, so it took me a couple of years, but I acquired some deer tongues, right? If you kill one or two deer a year, you need to get six or eight tongues in order to make a dish. And I remember, I think I had five or six and there was no leftovers for our small family of five. And uh, I went away from keeping them for a couple of years because a lot of us, I just forget, right? Like you get the heart, you get the tenderloins. And I just forget to get the tongue. And uh, well, this year I had a bunch of deer readily accessible. So I kept three of the, the five that we got. And I froze them and I won't eat them until probably next year. I'll get a couple more deer and I'll get up, you know, a, a, a appropriate portion of deer tongues. But um, until I get tired of tongue tacos, that's what I'm going to have probably every time, you know, until I try something new. Uh, but that'll be something new for folks to kind of get to the next level. And there's plenty of recipes out there. Um, you know, give it a shot. It's kind of it's kind of tough to to. Um go away from that recipe that you know is going to be a hit in the household when you're only going to make it once every year or once every couple of years. You know what I mean? If you're going to knock it out of the park with something, it's pretty. It's a pretty good play to put on the table with the family. That's another meal that's accessible to folks too is tacos, right? So you name it, whether it's fish tacos, it's uh, barbacoa, it's the shanks, it's the tongue, um, heart. A lot of people make heart tacos. I mean, and I could make a heart taco and it would be delicious, but I wanted to try something new, right? I wanted to try what everyone else was trying, and it, it just wasn't for me, but uh, tacos is a great way to uh, to eat the hearts, whether it's sliced like steak, or quite frankly, you could grind it up and just brown it like you would normal taco meat. Um, I think you kind of lose some of the allure you're after when you're eating a heart if you do that, but if you keep it like, you know, steak fajita style, uh, that's being pretty true to the dish, and it's really pretty delicious once you, you know, put it in a taco. Then you just got to have the argument whether you're a flour or a corn person, you know, flour tortilla or corn tortilla. I, I was yeah, going to ask definitely. you what your sleeper deer recipe was going to be, but I, I might hesitate. I might think that the deer tongue taco might take that uh, take that prize for today. The, the other question I was wondering is, and this might get kind of at the heart of what we're talking about today, and kind of your presence on social media, but there, there, you used the word chefing earlier in the podcast, and I'm wondering if, in, in your eyes, there's kind of this difference between cooking and chefing, or, um, you know, like, what's your philosophy and approach to, to cooking wild game, and wh- why do you th- why are you bringing that to the table for everyone? Right, so I'll say, in short, I think the difference between a chef and a cook is just one person is formally trained and one person is not formally trained. Um, I'm pretty good in the kitchen, you know, but... Oftentimes I may not understand why certain things go together well, or I don't know the name of the technique I'm currently doing, or technically I'm calling a pot, a pan and a pan, a skillet. I have no idea, but, uh, that's the difference there. Um, and in regards to just making wild game taste better because so many people, right. I don't like that. It tastes gamey. Like that's, that's a unbelievably overused comment that just really gets me at my core. And it used to really bug me. I get real defensive and it's like, 
if they're still saying that I didn't do something right on my part, potentially, you know, to make it right. Um, and sometimes people just want to be that person in the room, I guess. Um, but making sure that you treat it well from the field, from the time of the shot, to the time it reaches your plate is critical. And I know that sounds obviously cliche, but one of the biggest things that I think I can't uh, preach enough on is just draining the fluid from your meat. So if you were to go to the store right now, you were to go to the meat department and you go to all the steaks that are already kind of pre-wrapped and such, there's going to be, a, I call it a meat diaper. There's like a pad underneath there that's soaking up the fluids, whether it's the, the water they've injected into that steak or it's just the natural fluids of that steak. Um, if you were to take a cut of beef and cut it right off the cow and eat it, it's not going to taste like that 28-day dry-aged beef that you're accustomed to, right? Um, so with deer, it's not gamey. It just tastes like deer, right? It tastes like duck, etc. So a lot of where the flavor lives in deer and ducks, and especially fowl, especially, so ducks, geese, um, mainly those two, it lives in the fluid within the muscle fibers. And a lot of people call it blood. I call it blood because I think everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say that, but I think it's called myoglobin or it's some sort of protein fluid. But that is where the flavor of the deer, the flavor of that shoveler duck that's, you know, rooting up the bottom of the the pond or whatever, that's where the flavor lives. So if you can get that out, you're going to be in a better place. And I always joke around and say, I use more paper towels than any man should um, because I, I take the meat out and I drain it in paper towels. I don't have any fancy meat diapers. I don't have any fancy methods. I just use good quality, thick paper towels and I layer it at the bottom. The meat draws the fluid out. It doesn't dry it out by any means. It's just pulling that unwanted fluid out. Um, I vac pack it. And then when I'm thawing it out, I'm draining it again. Um, when I'm doing my ground meat in those ground meat round bags, um, I slice it from the bottom. There's a couple of dog ears inside that bag on the corners, and I take the knife from one ear to the other ear of the bottom of that bag uh, once it's thawed out just enough to cut it. And I place it in a 16 or 20 ounce stadium cup with a paper towel at the bottom, and I put it back in the fridge, and I let that fluid drain out of that ground meat so that when I'm ready to make burgers or tacos, etc., you know, everyone's probably taken one of those round bags or they've taken a steak, uh, they've taken a backpack backstrap that installed out. It's just swimming in blood and they salt and pepper it and throw it in a skillet. And then what happens is, is you're steaming your meat. So it turns gray, right? Whether it's a steak or your ground meat, it turns gray. And that's because you're steaming it. You're not getting a sear on it. And again, these are all things I learned from Food Network. Like I just watch TV and it's just basic technique, right? Have a hot pan and make sure that your meat is like if a steak is padded dry We'll make sure your ground meat is drained. It's going to allow your meat to stick together better. So for those folks that don't mix their ground venison with something, if it's drier, and I mean it doesn't have that fluid in there, it's going to naturally want to bind together a little better than if there's just a bunch of fluid not allowing it to glue together. So um, that's a huge part is just making sure that you're putting the best product in the skillet and you're, you're cooking it at the right temp, right? You're not overcooking wild game. Almost across the board, you never want to overcook anything past medium. Um, a lot of people say medium rare. I'm not going to argue with them, but personally, I'm more of a medium guy. But um, And I'll eat it if it's mid-well. I'll eat it if it's well done, but I just know that it's going to be optimal at mid-rare to medium uh, for most things. So if you don't overcook it and you season it properly and you let it rest, etc., just like simple techniques, it will go from really good to amazing. And just to hear people and, and what they eat and what they think is amazing, and it is amazing to them, but like Again, I'm at a different career path or I'm at a different level of eating, right? Like I love to cook, but I love to eat good food. I 
That's what I, that's why I do this. I love to eat good food. And, um, I just, I don't settle for marginal food anymore. And again, I make something that may be marginal to me and people are at the table just like gobbling it up, which is a great compliment, you know, but when you're impressed, theoretically they should be. And when they're not, you know, you kind of get a little perturbed, but it's like more for me at that point, you know? That's really interesting, John. And that was, that was something I, I had intended on chatting chatting with you about is the uh the draining of the fluids and the meat and that, that's something that you can see you're you're very uh vocal about on your uh social media pages um one thing i did want to ask you um you talked about the evolution of your of your cooking as you know since the pepper steak since you started processing your own venison and and all this along with that has has your um journey as an outdoorsman uh expanded and involved at all great question so and i will say too that triggered me to remember like i wouldn't i'd be remiss if i didn't say that i was inspired by a few other people so i first started watching steve ranella back when he had his wild within show on uh, i think it was the outdoor channel it was wild within steve ranella and he was doing all the cooking on there and then uh i work in for pheasants forever uh hank shaw was on our national convention on our wild game cooking page so i I got turned on to this hunter angler gardener cook guy and i'm like i'm a hunter i'm an angler i garden i know i cook and then i would call hank a good friend now you know like we, we see each other almost annually whether it's at our national convention or at different other opportunities and um so those folks definitely inspired me to take my my wild game cooking to the next level and to get more out of the animal for sure more so hank on that regard you know he's definitely a nose to tail kind of guy um and sorry about that i forgot the, the question at hand though as far as uh, oh so has my 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 chasing of the animals expanded um not really um i've always hunted everything a little bit so i'm not an avid deer hunter i'm definitely not an avid archer i do archery hunt but that's only because it expands my season to kill deer um you know so i deer hunt i duck hunt i small game hunt um i shoot doves ducks geese pheasants quail all of it i do all of it a little bit i mean i may only get out a a couple times after doves like once or twice i may only get out after quail and pheasants two or three times but i like to do all of it and the one thing i guess to answer your question the one thing that did expand my uh chasing ability if you want to call it that was getting a dog so i got a, a lab five years ago and i definitely do a lot more bird hunting now than i ever would have because i can go out with just him and i and have a much better success rate than if it was just me by myself. So, I had a couple technical questions about the the freezing and thawing of, of the the venison, and uh, I'm not sure if you'd have the answers for me, but they're they're always something that pops into my mind when uh, when I'm cooking myself. And one of them was that like I had the luxury to hang my deer for like three weeks this year because the temperatures were right. I don't know it's like in Ohio, but like in Manitoba here, our deer can freeze rock solid overnight sometimes. And that really doesn't help um, with the aging process. Um, but I've noticed, like, I could take that back trap, clean off the deer at that three-week mark, and throw it on the grill, and it would come out great. But once I freeze it and then thaw it again, a lot more of that fluid seems to come out. So is, is like, that freezing process releasing more of that fluid or what's happening there? And the second question would be, um, sometimes I like to cook with like a marinade or something like that. And it seems like that would almost contradict, like if you marinated that strap, would it contradict the point of the sear, which is to like have that dry contact with the skillet or a, a flame or something like that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Great question. So I'll probably forget the second question in a minute. So remind me. 
For the, sure. first question, the first question, um, in Ohio, it could be 30 degrees one day and 70 the next. And it's just one of those things that as a wild game cook and as a food processor and as someone who doesn't have a whole lot of time available, I'm really crossing my fingers hoping that I get very favorable weather to hang deer. Um, that's one of the reasons I don't early season archery hunt because I don't want to kill a deer in 75 degree weather and have to worry about processing it that day, right? Like skinning it out, finding a way to get it cool. It just makes me a little uneasy. And if I'm out, I've killed deer early, uh, but I just try to manage and play the weather so I don't have to worry about the warmer weather. But um, yeah, if you do freeze it, it's no longer aging. So, um, and I mentioned it earlier, I will drain my meat throughout the processing portion and then I will back seal it and then I will put it um, in a container, in a Tupperware, in the fridge with a paper towel at the bottom to get basically a second phase of the draining because it, it's just like the soil, right? Um, you get that freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw, um, and it just it moves those fluids around. So definitely re-drain your meat after you thaw it out. And it may not be nearly, obviously, as much as if you did a great job of hanging or draining it in the first half. Um, sometimes weather doesn't allow you to, you know, I may have to cut it up that day or the next day um, so I don't get that luxury and sometimes we don't have enough fridge space. So drain it out the second time. Um, and in regards to the marinade, um, that's a great point. So yes, it like I started out my marinade process back in the day with just straight up Italian dressing, right? I, like everyone's done that. It's a very beginner move and it tastes great. Um, you put it in a skillet, sure enough, your steak kind of turns gray a little bit. And a lot of the times that's twofold. One, you've got fluid on your steak. And two, you don't have your skillet hot enough. Um, there's always a fine line between ruining your wife's skillet and getting a good steer, or a good sear on a, ste- on a steak, you know? So um, depending on what you're looking to do, like, so if you're cooking over open flame, that, that marinade, that wetness isn't going to do any harm at all. If you're searing it in a pan, specifically a small pan that's not up to temp, that's when you're going to kind of counterdict that sear kind of thing. So depending on what you're after, you very well may want to pat that dry and then maybe, I don't say dust it off, that's actually the opposite. You may want to re-season it a little bit with um, some sort of steak seasoning or something to give you that um, that fresh seasoning, but pat it dry, season it, maybe rub it with a little olive oil. That also That's kind of a sleeper tip too. I don't often mention it, but almost always on roasts or steaks, after I get that initial uh, drainage of fluid, and I let's say I'm ready to replace the paper towels the first time, I will remove the paper towel, or let's say once it's done draining, I will remove the paper towel, and I will rub it with just a little bit of extra virgin olive oil just to take the smell away, right? Not It could be a good smell. It's just raw, wild game meat smell. I rub it with a little extra virgin olive oil. So a lot of times you eat with your eyes, you eat with your nose, right? And uh, so it helps not only marinate a little bit, but it also helps with aroma, um, and so that's a little, and it helps, it's a binder for your steak seasoning or for your seasoning in general, just a little bit of, I mean, you're just talking about enough to rub it around with your hands. Um, so that's a nice little tip too. Yeah. I've started incorporating a lot more olive oil into my marinades and, uh, and seasoning as well. And it, it, I find it helps, especially with game meat because it tends to be so lean that, that, that fat, that olive oil actually helps with the, the sear as well in that regard too. Exactly. That, that, yeah, so there's like three benefits of just rubbing your meat with that. You get rid of the smell, it helps bind your seasoning, and it adds some fat to the pan. And I'll rub it with the extra virgin, but I'll cook with regular olive oil or even canola oil because um, the smoke temperature, the smoke point of extra virgin isn't very high. 
Um, so I will rub it with that, but I will cook in either regular olive oil or canola oil. And for those that don't have that and they've got vegetable oil, it'll work. But in all honesty, it will taste better if you use canola. Obviously, I'm sure there's other fancy hoity-toity oils out there. You know, I, I don't drink my bush light with my pinky in the air. I just I just drink my bush light, you know. So <laughs> canola oil is my fancy oil I can afford. Oh, man. that That is – I've never heard that before. I like that. And uh, on that note, um, I know you, you got uh, some places to be here, John, so we don't want to keep you too much longer. But uh, is there anything on the horizon for – the wild game cook or pheasants forever that you, uh, you'd like to share with us before we take off? Hey, um, I know I'm looking forward to, you know, kind of diversifying my portfolio with the wild game stuff. So if you find me online, either on Instagram or, or Facebook under wild game cook, you know, drop me some, uh, ideas on what I could expand to next potentially. Um, I know I've got a buddy in Missouri who makes, he calls it summer sausage, but it's not what I know as summer sausage. I'd call it some sort of dried meat that he hangs in his basement that it comes out really hard, more like a salami. Um, I'd love to get into that, but I don't have the right humidity controlled environment. So I'd probably have to buy something. Um, but I'm definitely always looking to get into something new. Um, and as far as pheasants forever goes, whether it's pheasants forever, ducks unlimited, Turkey Federation, any, conservation nonprofit. If you're a sportsman and you don't belong to one of these organizations, you should become a member, look to support them where you can, especially given these times over the last 10 months, the upcoming banquet season for us down here is typically January, February, March, because everyone's got cabin fever and they want to get out and go socialize. And that's all in jeopardy right now. So, um, you know, we put a lot of money into the ground. So, um, look us up, look up, the other ones renew your membership gift a membership to a friend or your parents um and look to support those nonprofits. uh you know in the current times well we appreciate you coming on the show john thanks so much and thanks for everyone for listening uh we'll catch you on the other side and that wraps episode 71 with john wallace the wild game cook thanks for coming on john learned a lot had a few good laughs there and discover that we'll have a few more things to talk about in the near future, I'm sure. Uh, before we go, just want to remind folks, as always, our website's up and running. Uh, if you have any questions on how you use it, just reach out to us uh, either through email or our Instagram handle there. Uh, Sheldon, what's new and exciting for apparel coming into 2021? Oh, man, we got so many cool things. But the first couple things I'm going to talk about, the only couple things I'm going to talk about right now, is our toques. Uh, we're restocked up in our black ones, and we've got a few camel ones left, and then we got these new two new colors, white and forest green. Uh, we've had some requests from some predator hunters for some white headwear, so we got that in. But we have very limited numbers on them. Like I don't even I can't remember how many we have. So if you do want one, please check it out right away, quick, because I don't think they're gonna last long. Though. Uh, we had only have them in the store and we've already sold a few of them. So, um, yeah, please check that out. <clears throat> and also in the store, we have all of our sweaters are in stock. We've got, um, all of our hats are in stock. The only thing that we don't have right now is kind of t-shirts and tank tops and stuff like that, which we will be hopefully bringing some out before the summertime or before the hot months. So keep checking it out whenever you have a minute, go in there, check it out. There's also a, a vlog on, the on, in our menu. And we have one one submission by our good friend Hack, who talks about his elk hunt. 
So that being said, if anybody has a story that they'd like to share, maybe one of us will write one up one of these days and put it on there. But come come check our website out. We've got that vlog going, and hopefully we can get that uh, to carry on with a little bit of tradition with it. So thanks a lot, everyone, for uh, checking us out that way. Awesome, and I, I think on another great picture I just imagined in my head was that maybe if someone was able to get on a good snow goose hunt with one of those white hats and uh, had a whole mess of snow geese in front of them, that'd be pretty pretty rad thing to see on our end for sure, I would imagine. I guess, yeah, and the spring goose hunt is coming up here in the next you know, three or four months, so that is a, might be something someone might want to buy. Yeah, someone look into that. All right, folks, and that's going to wrap it for us today. As always, uh, keep your powder dry, keep your knife sharp, and keep your pinkies in. 